Welcome to How We Run, the podcast about nonprofit success. I'm Trent Stamp, CEO of the Eisner Foundation. And I'm Julie Lacatur, and I help nonprofits with strategy, fundraising, and digital media. In this episode, we are joined by Alan Michael Graves of the Good Plus Foundation, who shares how his organization went from providing goods and training to raising money for an emergency microgrant program. Hey, Trent, how's it going? It's, I guess it's just more of the same, Julie, but, <laughs> uh, but all things considered, it's, uh, it's pretty good. It was my daughter's 18th birthday over the weekend, so I am uh, the proud father of an adult. Oh my goodness, congratulations on crossing that finish line. Yeah, it was more of a cross for her, but I was, <laughs> uh, I'm happy to say that I'm still here and, and looking forward to the, the next stage of her journey. Do you grant to any organizations that would be considered like pass-through organizations or organizations that give grants to individuals or grants to other organizations? Generally, no. Generally, we like to we like to be the one that make the grants. If we have the infrastructure in place and we have the capacity that if there were a, a smaller organization, we could make those grants. There are a few exceptions. I believe we're going to talk to one today. But, but for the most part, you know, we're investing in organizations because we like the work they do in terms of service delivery and we want to fund their service delivery and, and we, will, we will stick to making grants to those organizations that we think are effective. Can you talk to, from your point of view as a funder, of like why that is a risky proposition or why that is typically something funders don't like to do? I think there's a couple of issues. I think there is an, an inefficiency built into it when it's not done well. There's a cost to it. And every foundation is trying to keep their costs as low as possible. And, you know, adding a middle person to the equation in some way or another is going to be less efficient. It's, it, it's that person in the middle of whatever they're doing, um, and you're making the argument that they're providing a potential value add, is also adding a, a, an expense. And so that's something that, that doesn't make me usually happy at a foundation. I mean, I think the other aspect is it's, it's what do I need you for? If there's a third party on the other end that's doing something remarkable, why don't I fund them directly? What is it that you're doing? Because you're probably going to take a small percentage of my funding. You're probably going to take a large percentage of the credit. And the question is, is the grantee at the far end, who are they beholden to when it comes time to ask how do we account for the grant that was made here? And then on the opposite side of the coin, like what are some good reasons to do it? The good reasons are I'm not nearly as smart as I think I am. And so if you in the middle are smarter or better connected to a community that I don't serve, then you are in effect operating as a high quality in the trenches program officer. And that's something that, that can bring great value to me. And also the person in the middle can assess the real world needs that are there on an ongoing basis throughout the year and not just at that one particular time when I was evaluating the grant and making the potential decision. Usually I make my grant, I go back to the office and I expect you to keep me up in the loop, you know, a couple of times a year. But let's be honest, I have a lot of grantees and a lot of other things to do. I'm not monitoring the day-to-day aspects of that grant. And sometimes a, uh, a person who's serving in the middle can do that in a far more effective way. So that's the point of today's conversation. So we were talking through some interesting 
changes that we'd seen in in with nonprofits. And you gave me the list that the Eisner Foundation have put together of pivots made by your grantees. And on that list was uh, a note about the Good Plus Foundation, who had pivoted some of their program to be giving micro grants to some of their partners. And that struck me as very, very interesting. So today we are joined um, by Alan Michael Graves, who is the Director of National Programs at the Good Plus Foundation. And Good Plus Foundation is a leading national nonprofit that works to dismantle multi-generational poverty by pairing tangible goods with innovative services for low-income fathers, mothers, and caregivers. So to tell us more about that pivot and what he does and how he accomplishes everything is Alan Michael. Hey, Alan Michael. How are you? Hello, Trent. How are you, sir? I'm good. I guess in uh, full disclosure, it is relevant to acknowledge that Alan Michael is uh, is a grantee of the Eisner Foundation and has been administering our funds for several years now here uh, in in Los Angeles. So Alan Michael, can you tell us a little bit about what you do at Good Plus and specifically, what did you do at Good Plus before COVID-19 came in? So as you say, we work with anti-poverty programs um, across the country, but primarily in Los Angeles and New York. We serve about 75 different programs and we provide goods plus services to those um, programs and organizations to serve the community in the capacity that they do. Those goods are usually essential goods that would help a family in poverty thrive, right? And my job is to help design and create and provide resources to those programs in both New York and Los Angeles. Been with the organization about two years. I work heavily with the 35 programs that we have here in Los Angeles and help the program leaders create programming that incentivize the goods that we give to further their program for retention, for completion. And we found that that model, that incentive model has been highly effective. So when you say that you provide goods to incentivize people to partake in programs, concretely, you do things like If a father who's not connected to his child agrees to go to fatherhood programming, you will provide him with strollers and cribs and diapers so that he can be a better father. And so it's kind of a combination of programming with the incentive of a durable good that makes it easier for them to be better at the things that they want to do and potentially escape the poverty that we've talked about. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that we'd like to to acknowledge is that we meet the families where they are. So it's great that a father would go to a program to become a a better father. But let's be honest, we all are, are restricted by the time that we have in a day. And so in meeting these fathers and providing incentives for them to continue and or join a program works to their benefit. And are those goods in kind donations or where are the goods coming from? combination of in-kind donations. We fundraise. Our board supplies a tremendous amount of of the donations needed, and we do drives for the different items as as the need arises. So what I'm hearing from you is that in normal times, it's the in-person training, and there's also the exchange of durable goods. What happened eight weeks ago? Well, eight weeks ago, (laughs) the design of our program totally changed. Um, Because in those programs that we work with, we set up a monthly schedule 
or they tell us, you know, what might be needed from the families that they're working with. I'm managing a program. I have 37 people this month. I'm going to need two strollers, two cribs, and a high chair. We take that request, package that up for them to come pick it up. They pick it up and then deliver it to the families. Because of the crisis, uh, we uh, had to make some immediate and quick decisions. And one of those was not allowing and permitting our staff to engage with those partners on a, a monthly basis. So it requires us to do a couple of things because we, we take new donations and we also take gently used donations. So for safety reasons, we stopped taking the gently used and only dealt with new product. We limited the amount of staff that we were having in our warehouses, both in New York and Los Angeles to one person. And so one person can't put together donations for 35 programs. And then we moved to large scale donation for those partners. And so in the past, if for the example I gave, we might give 10 strollers and two diaper bags and a couple of cases of diapers, but we had to move to a place where we were delivering large pallet size donations to organizations to continue to get the product to the populations that needed the most. And then you took it one step further, right? Yeah, because uh, the further we got into the pandemic, we started to see that organizations were not even doing home visits and people were not leaving their houses, but they, the, the need was still there. We were still hearing that people needed things. And so we were doing calls almost every other day to our the 35 partners here in Los Angeles to say, what, you know, what are the needs? And we found that they were still some of those things that we were providing, but we couldn't provide them on a smaller scale that was needed. So we came up with an emergency micro-grant program where we would fundraise here in the organization to provide uh, mini grants, emergency mini grants to these organizations so that they can then purchase and or acquire the, the goods that were still needed within those families. So I might not be able to get Ms. Smith um, three boxes of Pampers for her kid this week, but I could get her a gift card, uh, even electronically, where she could go purchase or she could order them uh, and have them delivered to her house. Or, you know, it was diapers was one example, but thermometers, food. Organizations had to come up with what they would do with those micro grants. And we distributed those probably within seven days from the design of the, the program. So did you have the cash on hand to make that type of program available? Or did you have to fundraise distinctively for that? Crossed our fingers and fundraised. <laughs> we thought it would be a good idea. We reached out to our board and all of our um, partners and those who have followed Good Plus over the years. They said they would support it. We rolled out the program and within literally three or four days, the funds for this emergency micro grant started to roll in. And uh, again, literally three, four days later, no more than a week, we were able to have those funds de deposited into the organization's accounts so they could then distribute them to the families. So what do you attribute those donors' willingness to make those gifts that quickly to? It seems to me like the obvious answer is a lot of goodwill and a lot of trust and a lot of good relations that you built up over the years so that they would be there for you in a time of crisis. But Maybe I'm wrong. How were you able to raise money like that so quickly? You were absolutely right. We were able to tell the story. And part of that is through the constant communication we have with those donors and our board members that we do, that when we had to change the narrative, or I love the word pivot that you used, um, when we had to pivot, we were able to communicate that in a way where they understood it. 
and respond to our need immediately. So we started off with just an Amazon drive and we found out quickly that the things that were needed and being requested were not available even through Amazon. Although some of those donors went online to purchase those items, they saw exactly what we were telling them. Hey, there are no diapers. There is no toilet paper or uh, paper towels. And so when we went back then and said, this is what we plan to do, you know, the, the, the programs are saying we can help them get these through maybe their local market or through Walmart or whatever. But we want to purchase maybe even gift cards so that they then can go get the items themselves. They, they responded very well and we were able to do that. So it sounds like you put together an Amazon wish list of like, go ahead and buy things directly for the families we work with. And then the people were enthusiastic and wanted to do it just that the supply wasn't there. So it was Absolutely. the next, it was the next step for you. Yeah. It was another pivot to say, okay, that didn't work. What's next. And that's when we came up with the emergency micro grant idea. How did you tell that story to your funders who you obviously already had a good relationship with? Well, they know that these were families that were already in need. And similar to most of the stories that we tell, it's about the kids, right? And so we, we told the story of the families that we serve here in Los Angeles and in New York that were already under the poverty line, but now is struggling even more. And how we could provide basic essentials and necessities to these families during this time. And it was before it got pretty bad. I think what you said there is important. You were talking about the families that you served. You weren't necessarily talking to your donors about the logistics of how you were going to do it. It was really about the impact. Absolutely. And, and not even the goods. I think pivoting back to the to why we're doing it, the goods, um, plus our services, because you know it's the Good Plus Foundation. The plus has to do with providing essential training and resources to the families that we serve. So we've been doing, I've been personally doing quite a bit of training on self-care and vicarious trauma for our grantee partners who work with the families. And that has been beneficial to them in their engagement with them. But again, focusing on the family itself is, I think, how and why we're successful in our engagement. And are you building into that fundraising any overhead expense to cover the training and cover the stuff that you do as part of distributing those funds? No. So the micro grant fundraising is specifically to those grants given to our, our, our partners, the 35 in Los Angeles and the 37 in New York. Our board has a separate fundraising capacity or ask to cover staffing and training in those times. Did you have any concern about mission creep? that this isn't necessarily what you guys do and what you have done. And I know that in times of crisis, nonprofit leaders all want to do everything because that's the kind of people that you are. But sometimes the attempts to do everything leads to people doing nothing particularly well. What, what, what made you feel confident that this was something you could do and that this was in line with your mission and not overstepping in a way that was not within your strength? That's a very good question. And we struggled with that in the very beginning because like I said, our mission was to, to provide resources to programs, not individuals. But in the pivot of responding to the crisis, we had to put a focus more on individuals as opposed to programs, which is the opposite of what we do. We had to kind of create a balance because we could not turn into an organization where individuals that need diapers just pull up to the back of the warehouse to get diapers. 
but we had to be strategic you know, in helping those families, but maintaining some sort of structure. So again, I, I, at the beginning, I talked about how it was a, an incentive-based program, right? Well, in, during the crisis, it didn't turn into an incentive. If you needed the diapers, you need the diapers. Uh, and I think we, we, as a team, when we st- sat to brainstorm, we came up with that immediately. That was one of the areas that we could give in on, right? The other was trusting our partners. We have had most of our partners for multiple years, and we trust to do with them because someone asked the same question about, well, if you're giving them micro grants and you're giving them cash to purchase gift cards, how do you know what's going where you're going? Well, when you have a relationship with an organization and work with them as closely as we do, then that was less of a concern. Yeah, I, I'm hearing that loud and clear from you, which is you guys have spent a long time having high quality relationships with both your board and your funders and with your partners. And, you know, that's a good thing to do just because that's a good thing to do. But that's also a good thing to do because you never know when the world is going to change on you and you're going to want to have that kind of equity in the bank with both the service deliverers and those that make your funding possible. So I think one of the key lessons here is that you guys have built up that kind of equity over a long period of time that allowed you to make some kind of risky choices and and do some things that were a little bit brave and a little bit different and could have ended poorly if you did not have that kind of equity with long-term partners. So I think that's a, that's a valuable lesson for, for other nonprofits out there, which is to you know, put, to, put the money in the bank with, uh, with your partners because you never know when you might need to withdraw it. Absolutely. And one of the reasons why we were successful in doing that is because we did just that, the relationship cultivation with our partners as well as the community at large. So, you know, we have what are our regular partners that I described early, but we also have crisis partners in anticipation that things like this would happen. So we, on an ongoing basis, we create and establish relationship with LAUSD, Los Angeles Probation, Child Welfare. So in the event that a crisis does happen, we have partners to, to call on. And this, in this situation, that's exactly what happened. We weren't able to get to some of the areas in South Los Angeles to deliver the diapers, or there wasn't an organization that could get them to the people in need. But we called on the LA City Council, who we have a relationship with, who was able to help us facilitate that through a partner to get the goods to the families that needed. I'm wondering how you anticipate that this might impact your work moving forward when, if things go back to some version of normal. Are there aspects of what you're doing right now that you think, well, we might want to try that when we go back to things being the way they were? Our program team has thought a lot about it. And I think having it on the table is probably smart. We haven't gone one way or the other, but I think this crisis has put us in a position to try to think differently. How might we engage with um, our partners And an example of that is we talked about maybe even, because one of the things we encourage our partners is to not stockpile goods, right? Get them out to the families as soon as you get them. But if partners were allowed to have a little reserve at their locations, they might've been able to respond quicker. So that's come up in our conversations. So yes, it's challenged us to, to question how we work and if some of the things and the ways that we've adapted might become normal practice. Once, once and if things return back to they once were. <laughs> Let's all hope. Let's all hope. That's very interesting. So what's ahead? 
what's next for for good plus in the short term with dealing with COVID-19 and then again assuming we get out of this unscathed in in some version what's what's ahead in the long run I'll start with the short term. The short term goal is to continue to think of strategic ways to help families in need. The longer it goes on, the more challenging the diaper situation, the food shortages are going to be. So it's requiring us to continue to think how to fundraise more, how to deliver more. But long term, our goal is to also work closely with our partners to be creative around establishing new innovating programs that might have prevented some of our partners from going into crisis mode so quickly. So an example with that of that is we don't have a, a huge financial literacy component to our organization, but bringing in financial literacy instructors and consultants to work with our programs to then work with our families might be an option in the future. So we're prepared more if that's possible in the future. So what advice would you have for other organizations that might see the value in, say, getting funds directly to the families they serve or doing that kind of supplemental goods and funds for families in need? I would echo what Trent said about relationship building. To make sure that you don't get yourself in an uh uh-oh situation is to establish the right partnerships and procedures um, early on. And invest in your community. Invest in community relationships. Good Plus, you know, is an interesting organization. It's it's extremely well connected. It is celebrity founded, and I think in in some spheres of the world, it's seen as an organization that is is pretty. And, and I think in talking to Alan Michael and in talking to their leadership over the last few years, you see that this is a gritty organization. This is an organization on the ground with deep connections among vulnerable populations and uh, and has put the work in to to make sure that when times are tough, that they are well positioned to, to respond. And I just can't get over the fact that they pivoted on a dime. They said, you know, this, this is a difficult crisis, but we're smart enough and well connected enough that we can help in different ways. And so let's try it. And that's a, that's a testament to good leadership, good connections, good, smart people like Alan Michael, and a dedicated board that trusts the organization. I can't say enough good words for an organization that is essentially doing something that I said up front that I don't love, which is making microgrants. But they're doing it well, and they're doing it smartly, and, and they may cause me to, to rethink my, my entire position. Thank you. I just would say it's, it's one of the reasons why I came to the organization. I w- worked as a program leader here in one of the local community-based organizations for the last 15 years and was a grantee of Good Plus. And given the opportunity to join the, the organization and be a thought leader to not only provide service, but to change the narrative around these low-income families, I jumped at the bit. And I'm so glad to be part of an organization that, again, like you said, it allowed us to think outside of a place where most would say, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. They encouraged us to think about the the families on the ground. And so far, it's turned out to be really well. We look forward to to increasing and sharpening those pivots and, and, and pivot again if necessary. That's all for today's episode of How We Run. Please check out goodwaysinc.com to find past episodes of this podcast and other tips about working in nonprofit. If you have any questions you want me to ask a funder on this podcast, you can tweet me at goodwaysinc. 
Please subscribe to How We Run on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and review. Thank you for listening. I'm Julie Lacature, and we'll see you next week for another new episode.